Christchurch, New Malden. 17th November 2019, 9.30 service. Tim Davis speaking on keeping the conversation going when we feel rejected by God. Uh, yeah, keeping the conversation going when we feel rejected by God. Uh, I guess it's my turn to get all heavy and deal with the difficult subjects this week. Um, but first I feel I really need to actually address an issue that's been bugging me ever since Stephen announced this um, series for the 9.30 service in November. And we're looking at four Psalms. 13, 22, 44, 88. Is anyone else's OCD massively triggered right now by that? Yeah. 18, 44, 22, 13. Oh, come on. Anyway, let's try and move on from that and um, onto something a bit less stressful. Let's see. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, we're doing rejection, aren't we? I just can't, can't win this one. <laughs> no one likes to feel rejected, really, do they? No, it's something we learn early on in life that feels unpleasant, troubling, upsetting, scary. As a child, it's, it can be a hard thing to experience rejection. You know, being the last person picked for a team because no one wants you on their side. Someone we thought we were good friends with, picking someone else to be their new best friend. The potential for insecurity when, when feeling that sense of rejection by our parents when a new sibling comes along. It's hard to feel rejected. And we're going to think out later on, it doesn't get any easier the older we get. Now, Psalm 44, which John just read to us, it's pretty bleak. Um, it's not actually the darkest psalm in the Bible. Uh, that accolade is generally uh, accredited to Psalm 88, the one we get to enjoy next week, so in for a treat there. But there's still lots that you know, we can pick up and learn from this particular psalm and really help apply and examine in our own lives. Um, but for the moment, I just want to think about this whole idea of keeping the conversation going. I really like that um, image we're using for this topic of a person holding a lantern in the darkness. Now, it's all about trying to look for the light when we find ourselves in the darkness. That's what we thought about a bit in our first couple of talks. And the two Psalms we looked at, 13 and 22, both have a structure that really works quite nicely with this idea. The first half or so of each psalm is the author writing about just how awful everything is, this whole woe is me thing going on. But then this kind of therapy of talking to God, of working things through with God, allows the writer to see that things aren't quite so bad. In fact, they're able to acknowledge God's goodness and faithfulness and realize that God has not abandoned or forsaken them. Now, Psalm 44 is slightly different. It, it begins in a sort of opposite way, describing, first of all, how great and mighty God is because of all the things he has done in the past, all those amazing things he did for his people many years ago. It says, we have heard it with our ears, O God. Our ancestors have told us what you did in their days and days long ago. With your hand, you drove out the nations and planted our ancestors. You crushed the peoples and made our ancestors flourish. And it goes on like that for eight verses. But having praised God, the tone changes. The psalmist is experiencing a difficult and challenging time in, in his life. And so he decides to basically have a right old moan at God. 
said, but now you've rejected and humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. You made us retreat before the enemy. Adversaries have plundered us. You've given us up, devoured like sheep, scattered among the nations. You sold your people for a pittance, gaining nothing from their sale. He's really laying it on thick to God, isn't he? And this continues for several verses, and the author is angry with God. Why? Well, because he feels rejected. He feels the people have been rejected. He accuses God, effectively, of showing favor to his ancestors, but not to God's people in the present day, the here and now. He says, you bless them, but not us. You reject us instead of blessing us. And this accusatory tone becomes almost as if the guy writing the psalm wants to put God on trial. He presents the evidence for God acting improperly, of being guilty of rejecting his people without just cause. He said, all this came upon us, though we had not forgotten you. No, we had not been false to to your covenant. Our hearts had not turned back. Our feet had not strayed from your path. This isn't fair. We've done nothing wrong. You can't treat us this way, God. You can't let these terrible things happen to us. This isn't how it's supposed to work. The guy's really taking it personally. The Israelites were feeling rejected by God. For some reason, he wasn't willing to protect them as he had their ancestors in days gone by, it feels. He wasn't enabling them to prosper as he apparently had done to people many generations ago. And so, how does that relate to us? Perhaps there are times, more than we might realize, when we feel that we've been rejected by God because of how he seemingly showers his blessings upon other people, yet overlooks us. And we start to compare ourselves to those around us. And the things that dominate our thoughts and insecurities become evident somehow that God clearly favours others over us. We might see all of our friends getting married, and yet we remain single. We work hard at our job and yet never seem to advance in our career the way that other colleagues do. We might long for children and not have them. might ask, why did my family member end up in hospital with an illness rather than somebody else's? Heck, some people clearly just seem to have all the good fortune. Sure isn't me. And when we start thinking that way, it starts to get bad. Our genuine pain and upset can just really take over and overwhelm us. We can spiral in our own sense of rejection. We don't want to try and find the light. Sometimes we just want to sit in the darkness, wallowing feeling, feeding the angst and anguish. We start thinking, does God even care? Is he even listening? Now, wake up, God. Rouse yourself, you lazy get. Do what you're supposed to do and be God, you know. Be good to me. And in that moment, we move from lamenting our sense of rejection and misfortune into manipulation. See, that's the problem with rejection. We take it so personally. It feels unfair and we want to challenge and change that sense of injustice. Now how dare God reject us? We're the good ones, right? Now we've done what he asked us to do, so surely there should be a little bit bit of quid pro quo going on here, yeah? 
We obey your commands, O God, and you shower us with blessings. Is that how it works? It doesn't even need to be a shower, you know, God, just a stream of blessings. But specifically these ones that I want right here, sorry, that I need right here. And so to me, Psalm 44 starts to sound like somebody trying to make a deal with their feeling of rejection. Trying to deal with it and wanting to make something, making, trying to make things right on their own terms. And I wonder how many of us might do that in our lives, try and manipulate God in that way. Now, all right, how many of us, when we were young, um, would try and reason with our parents? Like, Mom, if I promise to be good, please can I stay up and watch television? Or how about in our letters to Santa, he might write, Dear Father Christmas, if I promise to be good, please can I have a remote control fire truck, the big yellow teapot from Bluebird, a scale electric and please no more rubbish book tokens. Yeah, it's, I'll be good, get that, it's good. Have we ever perhaps tried to reason with God like that? Have you ever tried to make a deal with him? You know, as a, God, as a child, you might have prayed privately, Dear God, I promise to be good if you give me £100 and wake up in the morning. And as we get older, the deals that we try and make with God become more and more desperate. God, I'm in a world of trouble right now. If you can make it all right, I promise I'll make it up to you. They can get totally self-centered. God, please, I really, really like this girl, and you know, I really want to go out with her, Ryan. I want her to go out with me, Ron, my best friend. And look, I know she's not a Christian, so if you promise to make me go out with her, I'll totally tell her all about you on the sixth, no, the fifth date, yeah. We can try and manipulate God as an excuse sometimes. No, God, if you don't want me to go out to this party and get drunk tonight, give me a sign now. And sometimes this kind of temptation to want to manipulate God comes from our own petulance. We become so self-centered, so me, 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 that it seems okay to demand a response from God. But even when we feel that God has utterly rejected us and shown favor to another without any just cause or reason, that we can still find ourselves, like the psalmist, trying to manipulate God. We can be told that, you know, God's will is not ours to understand. And we get that cheesy line many of us had when we were young in our youth group saying, sometimes God says yes, sometimes God says no, sometimes God says wait, not just yet. And to be honest, when we're feeling like God has unfairly rejected us, that just sounds like rubbish. Don't understand God's way. <laughs> yeah, sorry, but I'm not satisfied with that. I want proof, answers, something for God that's here and now and involves me. I want the recognition and reward I deserve for being a good Christian. I'm tired of putting my neck on the line every day for you, God, believing in you. I'm tired of being made fun of, being ridiculed by people who assumed I was an intelligent bloke. People who say, surely you don't believe in all that God rubbish. I'm tired of it because it seems that you never actually give me something in return, do you? Everyone else seems to have it so much easier than me. I just want, for once, for you to give me some sort of proof. Surely you can understand that, God. I'll even promise to be an even better Christian for you. You know, if you give me that promotion or pay rise, or I promise to start giving some money or more money each week to church. Now, if you act just like I need you to right now, then I promise I'll go and witness to people all over the world. Just do what I want you to do, what I expect you to do, holding up your end of the bargain, okay, yeah? What do you say? No. No? What do you mean, no? Come on, give me something here. I'm... I'm not asking for much, I just, 
I'm just asking for it to be fair. I feel like you're rejecting me and my needs. You can easily do that. You're God, after all. Everything's possible from you. Why are you making this hard for me? Give me something. I gave you my son. Oh, yeah, you did, didn't you? I gave you a sacrifice. I gave you forgiveness. I gave you salvation. I gave you my son. See, God's not actually rejected us at all, has he? That's the thing with keeping the conversation going. We should really know where it's going to end up. When I was reading this psalm through, I kept noticing that final verse. Rise up and help us. Rescue us because of your unfailing love. I was struck by those words because they also appear in Psalm 13, the first psalm we looked at a couple of weeks ago. But in the context of how I've chosen to read part of this psalm, it could almost seem like another bargaining, manipulating tool that the psalmist is using. I will trust in your unfailing love, God, you know, the one that isn't going to let me down, the one which you've clearly shown to others and will be shown to me anytime soon, right? But if we want to actually consider what it means to acknowledge God's unfailing love, then they can't just be words that we say in the hope of something working out for us. We've got to keep the conversation going. Now, as the psalmist himself says in verses 20 and 21, you know everything, God. I can't hide things from you. I, I know that when I find myself talking to you, that I can't pretend I don't know the truth of what you have done for me in sending your son to die for me. God's unfailing love meant that he made the ultimate act of sacrifice in order that we might receive the ultimate act of love, each and every one of us. And the next verse in the psalm uh, is actually quite graphic, and the writer is at this point still feeling quite really aggrieved at how he perceives God to have abandoned the people, the Israelites. He says, yet for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Centuries later, in his letter to the Romans, which you can find in the New Testament, Paul takes those words and presents the reality of what it means to have received God's unfailing love, to be anything but rejected by God. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger of sword? As it's written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We may face trouble, hardship. And in the case of Paul writing there, and many people around the world today, we may even face imprisonment and death. And yet, Paul says, that's nothing compared to the love of God. Because God's love is more than. God's gift is more than. 
If you're feeling rejected by God, it's okay to want to lament, to want to cry out to God and complain, because that's how we start and we keep the conversation going. And we can start with the words of Psalm 44, and we can end with these words of Paul to the church in Rome. Keeping the conversation going, it's vital. It's about knowing that we're not rejected, no matter how despondent we may be feeling. Sometimes it's hard to break out of that dark place. We just find ourselves in a downward spiral of hurt, of despair, and of anger. But if we start to engage with God, to reflect on what he's actually done for us, then that's the way which leads to the way out of the darkness. The Christian singer-songwriter, a guy called Chris Tomlin, wrote a song called Unfailing Love. And it's been going round and round in my head um, ever since I've been starting thinking about this talk, particularly that last line. Inspired by what God has done for us, this song writes about how God cares deeply, individually, about each and every one of us. And the chorus to this song goes, In everything you hold in your hand, Still you make time for me. I can't understand. Praise you, God, of earth and sky. How beautiful is your unfailing love. And you never change. God, you remain the Holy One and my unfailing love. God, who has made the heavens and the earth, also loves you and never stops loving you. The rules haven't changed. We don't need to try and bargain with or manipulate God. Sometimes it may seem as if God's blessings are far from us, especially when we compare ourselves to other people. But it's not the case. His blessings to us already outweigh everything else, are far greater than that. And what he should receive in return from us is not our sense of anger or aggrievement, but our unfailing love for the one who saved us.